Welcome to the Grumpy Economist podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Grumpy Economist is John Cochran, the Rosemary and Jack Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution and the proprietor of the Grumpy Economist blog. And John, uh, we're going to do a little debt and monetary policy talk today, and this, this will be a play in two acts. We'll start with some other people's ideas that you've been scrutinizing recently, and then in the second half of the show, we talk about some of your own ideas, uh, actually an idea from a few years back that you've been reintroducing. But we'll begin with the the overnight sensation of the econ world. Amazing how quickly this has shot to prominence over the last few years. And that is modern monetary theory. Often our listeners may have heard it shortened to MMT. And there's a new book out by one of its leading proponents, Stephanie Kelton, who is an economics professor at Stony Brook and was a senior economic advisor to Bernie Sanders. This is a book you just recently reviewed in the Wall Street Journal. It's called The Deficit Myth. And before we even get to your analysis, let's just start with a refresher course. What are the major precepts of modern monetary theory? And also, how new is it? Is this legitimately novel, or are there significant significant precedents for this in economic thought? So, so thanks. Yeah. <clears throat> so I do uh, this week want to plug my written work <laughs> more uh, more uh, obviously than I usually do. I put a lot of effort into the book review of uh, Stephanie Kelton's book for the Wall Street Journal, uh, and it's in the Wall Street Journal. It'll be um, if if you can't get around the uh, paywall, it'll be on the blog in now about twenty days when I'm allowed to. Post these things. Um, and I did it, uh, I did, I did it for a reason. Um, there's a tendency in, in economics to, to do things too quickly. And a lot of people, a lot of people look down on the, oh, the MMT is from Stony Brook. Pah, we can't, we, you know, heavens. Uh, but I don't believe in that. I believe in you evaluate people based on their ideas and their logic and their evidence. Uh, as I looked into MMT, uh, it, it, it got very fashionable in, in lefty political circles, but I don't mind that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in the economic logic of it. I also... Uh, we have to say I, I didn't have room to say a lot of things in the in the uh, review, which is why I'm talking now. Um, I'm kind of a skeptic of the conventional view. So if MMT is wrong, I'm don't get me that I'm defending the conventional view. Uh, I my most of my research life is spent on something called the fiscal theory of the price level, which actually has some of the same basic ingredients that the MMTers point out, and and uh, starts with some of the same critiques of the conventional view. Uh, so let's just say it: the conventional the the em- conventional emperor. Is, is is naked, uh, the Fed really doesn't know how inflation starts or doesn't start. So that puts me in a mood to, to want to read MMT and take it seriously. Now, the MMTers didn't make it easy. Um, they they tended to communicate in, in blog posts and podcasts. Oh, heavens, <laughs> we're doing one, aren't we? <laughs> uh, podcasts and tweets and videos and speeches. And, and it was a funny linguistic thing. They keep saying, well, MMT says this and MMT says that. And I'm going, okay, where is this MMT? Um, and uh, strangely, it, it was very hard to find. Um, normally, uh, most ideas in economics, you can go look up an article in the American Economic Review or the Journal of Political Economy, or you can go to a session at the American Economic Association and, and you know, can find out 
what is the academic underpinnings? Where are the equations that that tell you what this is? And and people do blog posts and podcasts like we are to to summarize those things for a, a lay audience. But there wasn't anything there. Uh, there there just wasn't a source of what does MMT really say? Not just what do our blog posts and and uh, tweets and videos say? MMT says. So that made me a little frustrated. And then this book came along, which I thought was a golden opportunity, you know. So Stephanie Kelton's gonna gonna write down what MMT is. And now I've got one definitive source that I can go to. Because the hard part about MMT is if, if you engage them at all, they say, oh no, well, you gotta go look over here, and that's where we talk about that. And you go look at there, and that doesn't make sense. And they're no, but you gotta go look over. There's no source there. So here was a source that I could, uh, I hadn't talked about it before because what the, it seemed kind of nutty, but I, I don't want to say something kind of nutty unless there's a definitive source. So uh, the long prelude is yeah, here was a definitive source that I could look at to see what was in MMT. And I, I opened the book and I read it from cover to cover carefully and, and discovered that there isn't <laughs> much of anything there as monetary theory. Um, 80, 90% of the book has nothing to do with monetary theory. It's a long, dreamy sequence of all the things that Stephanie Kelton wants to spend money on. And, and most of that is, is kind of warmed over and not very well thought out. So, you know, the core of MMT is a federal jobs guarantee. So the federal government's going to hire people to do stuff. And you, you can think of immediately some obvious questions that have come up every time somebody said the government should hire people to do stuff. Well, who's, who's going to make them work? Why are they going to do something useful? Uh, how is this not going to turn into just another make work program? Why should they work at all if printing money is free? It's just completely not thought out. But but so I just ignored all that. And I'm interested in, well, the monetary part. So what is MMT? It's the statement that the federal government can print money can spend it uh, uh, practically to any amount you'd like, and that there won't be any inflation as a result. A uh, corollary is the federal government can borrow money in in any amount and spend it, <clears throat> and uh, they won't have to pay back the debts. Uh, and that's a remarkable proposition. And, and we're not talking just about a little bit here. We're talking about the full Green New Deal, a federal jobs program for everybody, free college, uh, free uh, 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 forgiving all student debt. It goes on and on like that. Uh, amazingly, Kelton didn't put any numbers into it. But, you know, you, you're talking 20, 30, 40, 50 trillion dollars at least in that going to work. So uh, short version, I read it quite carefully, and this just doesn't add up. Uh, it's it's basic economic mistakes. And interestingly, she um, doesn't, you know, there, people have thought about this issue, the sustainability of debt, money, and inflation. There's just nothing in the book that references anything since the early 1940s. So that they're out kind of on their own um, uh, reviving this this sort of very verbal school of thought that that doesn't add up. So that's the bottom line. <laughs> the short, that's the short, like the long version now. Well, I'll, I'll give you an opportunity to expand on it because uh, I'm curious about something. You did touch on this in your um, review, but for our, our listeners, if the idea here is that we're all too scared of inflation, we're too scared of deficits, we're too scared of the printing press, how open does modern monetary theory, at least in the character of this book, take the playing field to be do they does kelton concede any limiting principle on our ability to print our way out of problems yeah so um she, there is kelton's very interesting she she starts with some good principles and, and important ones 
uh, and then kind of takes them to where they get inconvenient, and then uh, <laughs> then the addition stops. So uh, it is, you know, we have remarkably low inflation despite big deficits. That's an interesting fact <clears> that's attracted all sorts of attention. And, uh, you know, lots of economists are peeling off from the standard wisdom. Uh, Larry Summers is one. Olivia Blanchard, uh, president of the American Economic Association, they, they both have been talking about we need to borrow more money and, and, and spend it. But they, everyone, you know, sees there is some limit out there. And even Kelton says there's a limit out there. And the limit is when when the economy runs out of slack. So in in her view, uh, you know, why doesn't this cause inflation? Well, because there's lots of people sitting around unemployed, and if you spend money, um, then you'll you'll just get them employed and increase real uh, output rather than drive up inflation. And that's that's been a conventional part of macroeconomics for you know 60, 70 years. The, the question is, where is that point? Um, <clears throat> I think. Most economists right now, even even people, uh, Ken Rogoff has been, he, he's he's sort of he's even more um, the world is ending than I am on debt most of the time. But even he right now is saying, look, we got to borrow money and get the economy through this horrible recession. <clears throat> but then, how much further could you go? Uh, and that's you know the big question: Can you do three trillion, five trillion, ten trillion, fifty trillion? Uh, at at when does the inflationary point come? Or have the law, or is there endless slack? I read Kelton carefully for, um, you know, some definition of what is slack. When do you run out of it? Uh, how would you measure it? And and there's basically none of that in the book. It's just an assertion. There's always so much slack that even if we print up money to forgive all student loans and free college and and free daycare and and uh, uh, affordable housing for all and the Green New Deal and a federal jobs program, well, that that's even not going to run out of the slack. And, and that's just an assertion. Well, there's so much slack. And so conceptually, this is, you know, um, if you if you remember your ISLM and the aggregate supply curve, it just states it's way out there, another 10, 20, 30 trillion dollars. With, with no real backing for that. I, I was intrigued by a line in your review, which I'd like you to take a moment to tease out for our listeners, because if you're a person with a generalist's interest in economics, you may not have ever stopped to think about this. You talk about how for someone like Kelton, as she describes in her book, taxes are not all that important as a revenue generator, because if you can just print the money, you've taken away a big part of the necessity for them. But she thinks their importance is as a device to reduce the wealth of the rich. And then you reference another argument of hers, which you think she eventually takes in the wrong direction. But you quote her as saying, quote, taxes are there to create a demand for government currency, close quote, which you respond to in the piece by saying this is a deep truth, which goes back to Adam Smith. So explain this observation because it's not one that we hear that often in popular discourse. Well, let me t- let me uh, expound on both of those points because they're really crucial. You can see how that review may have been sixteen hundred words, but I, I pared it down to a haiku as far as <laughs> what I got to say on it. The first one is this is an example of of Kelton's problems with logic. Uh, you can if you read the book and you know eighty percent of it is the people's economy and all this spending, you can see there's a political end to which we go. And she even says theories exist to defend policies. So you start with your policies and then you're looking for defenses. Well, that kind of leads you open to logical problems. So you write down a theory in which the government doesn't have to raise taxes in order to spend money. It can just print the money and there won't be any inflation. Uh, That is, and she's, uh, 
boy, she excoriates uh, uh, Obama and Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and everybody else on, on, on the Democratic team for even pretending that we need to raise taxes in order to pass all our wonderful spending programs. Well, logic, you know, the two plus two equals four logic says, well, great. Why don't we just get rid of all taxes then? <laughs> uh, if uh, you just can print money to buy things. Well, you can tell there's a political problem here because, you know, sort of the political program demands immense taxes on the rich. So, so now you're left in a logical conundrum. Your theory says you should just cut taxes, get rid of all taxes. That'll stimulate the economy like no one's business. Uh, but the political program demands taxes. So why do we have taxes? Well, uh, she says you don't need taxes to pay for anything. But uh, she wants to, and I put it, decapitate the rich. And I, I meant, I chose that word carefully. <laughs> she says to reduce inequality, uh, but you can reduce inequality from the bottom just by printing up money and giving it to people. The, it, it is to take down the rich. And she says there's this, there's this mantra that rich people are, are uh, ruining our democracy. And if we take away all their wealth, that'll make a society better. So it, it would you know, be just as effective to take them out and guillotine them and we'll be better off because the rich won't be polluting our democracy. So, um, you know, her, her reason for taxes is entirely to take away the wealth of rich people entirely because she thinks that they're they have different political opinions than she does. And then there's the second uh, reason for taxes. Now, that one I found more interesting. Um, because, uh, so I work on this fiscal theory of the price level and, uh, there's this deep question of why is money valued? There's these pieces of paper that, and now just little bits on a computer we all work so hard for. So an eterning, eternal economic puzzle has been, why do you work so hard for pieces of paper? And Adam Smith is a lovely quote in, in Wealth of Nations, and I'm going to get it wrong, but it goes something like this, a prince who uh, should require that taxes be paid in a paper money might therefore give value to that paper money. Uh, because if you got to get this kind of money on April 15th, then, uh, then you're willing to go work on April 14th to get some of those pieces of paper. Uh, and that is the foundation. I've been working 30 years on this. I'm working on this all day today, except for uh, right now. Uh, that's the foundation, I think, for the, the really important repair to monetary economics, which I said was was kind of falling apart. But here's the logical problem. Uh, then let's uh, let's take this view that uh, you stop inflation by soaking up inflation, soaking up money with taxes. Okay, we print uh, 20 trillion dollars to pay for the Green New Deal. Inflation comes. Whoops, we got to soak up the 20 trillion dollars with taxes. Uh, that's just the same thing as raising taxes to pay for the Green New Deal. Kelton somehow worked herself into, well, we can print up 20 trillion, but we'll only soak up 5 trillion of that with taxes, and somehow that will keep inflation from breaking out. That's where the addition uh, doesn't, doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you can stop inflation by soaking it up with taxes. That is, that not the Fed is fundamentally where we, uh, where inflation comes from. But you got to soak it all up with taxes. And that just revives the, the old fashioned uh, unpopular notion of the budget constraint. If you spend stuff sooner or later, it's got to come out of taxes. Let's talk about the idea that you've been promoting recently. You've been resurfacing an idea that you presented in a paper a few years ago about the potential value of financing our debt through something called perpetuities. There's also this slightly old-fashioned term, consoles, for these. So explain what these are and have they been an improvement on how we do things now? So um, Queen Victoria did this. Uh, <laughs> 
you know, old ideas. I have cited Adam Smith and Queen Victoria for our <laughs> new ideas today. Uh, not her personally, but um, her treasury. So uh, the government is right now when the government borrows money, say a 30 year bond, it um, it promises to pay you back the original amount in 30 years and it pays you a coupon, a percent every year until then. A perpetuity is a bond where the government just is going to pay you the coupon forever. So you give them $100, uh, you get $3 a year forever. Uh, now, eventually, uh, hopefully, the government is going to be awash with money and want to pay down its debt, and it just buys these back at, at market prices. Why is that a good thing? So a lot of reasons why it's a good thing. The first reason it's a good thing um, I, if our government is really exposed, I worry now, to a debt crisis in the same way that uh, suppose you're, you're borrowing for a mortgage. You can get the floating rate or you can get the fixed rate. The floating rate mortgage looks cheaper, but if interest rates go up, you're, um, I'm looking for a polite word for screwed, right? Uh, the interest rates go up, you can't afford your house, you're in deep trouble. Uh, whereas the fixed rate mortgage, it's a little higher interest rate, but you don't care after that what happens to interest rates, you're not going to lose the house. Well, the federal government's in the same boat. Uh, we've got, um, it, it's the debt to GDP is now around 100%, and debt relative to federal revenues is now five years of federal revenue. So imagine, take five years of your annual salary, and imagine that's how much debt you are in. And now are you going to finance this with a floating rate or a fixed rate? If you finance it with the floating rate, interest rates go up. Now you're just in a deep swarm of trouble because you got to pay. Uh, you got to pay that amount of interest on all your outstanding debt. So that's that's how debt crises start. Whereas if, if you lock in the long rate, uh, then uh, you never have to roll over that debt. So that's perpetuities. You never have to roll them over. You never have to find new uh, investors to come bail out, to come pay off the debt. And so you can pay off the old investors. You can't have a rollover crisis. Uh, so it just insulates the U.S. That, that's where I think the inflation will come from. When If it comes, people just get sick of U.S. government debt altogether. They're going to say America's tearing itself apart. It's never going to get around to fixing its fiscal problems. We better bail out of these things now. Interest rates go up, interest costs on the debt go up, and then it's like Greece, except Kelton's right. We don't have to default on the debt. We can print money to get rid of the debt, but then you get a massive inflation that wipes out the debt. That's a danger. It has happened over and over again in history. Just because current trends don't head that way doesn't mean it can't happen. Um, it's like buying earthquake insurance in California. Yeah, it hasn't happened in 20 years, but you better have that insurance. So number one, perpetuities, uh, really, they insulate you against any problems in the debt. Then there's a whole bunch of minor but very attractive versions. So our government rolls over its debt every about two years, meaning every two years we've got to find new people to, to, bar, to lend us money to pay off the old people. Uh, that means that uh, the dealer banks, by the way, are earning the bid-ask spread on the entire stock of government debt about once every two years. Uh, we don't have to do that anymore. And um, you, you notice how the Fed recently had to jump in to buy a, a trillion dollars worth of debt because uh, government debt markets were illiquid? Well, the debt markets are, are divvied up into 300 different issues, uh, and that makes each individual issue illiquid and hard to trade. If you have perpetuities, you just have one security out there, then it's just massively liquid. So all the liquidity problems of government debt, all of the rollover problems, uh, just all of the sort of technical problems that we have with it would be much, much better if we had very simple 
uh, government debt per perpetuities. And I'd also like to have a, a short version of debt. The Treasury should give each of us something that looks like reserves at the Fed, basically a money market account at the Treasury. It's a, it's a floating rate perpetuity and a fixed rate perpetuity. Two very simple securities, and uh, life, would, life would go better. We wouldn't be exposed to an inflationary danger and the uh, Treasury market. And we'd probably save some money, too, by making a more liquid interest rates would be even lower for the federal government, which can't hurt. John, final question that I'll ask you uh, on the point you raised about historical precedents and, and take it where you will, because it's pretty open ended. But I'm struck by something you mentioned earlier today and in your book review as well, specific to the book there. But in my judgment, this is also true of just the broader popular discussion around economics right now. We hear surprisingly few references to the 1970s, which was this era of tremendous economic drama culminating, of course, in stagflation. And I wonder to what extent practicing economists think of economic history as a valuable analytical tool for thinking about the future. Does it have a lot of weight or is the thinking more along the lines of, you know, there are so many variables at play here that the idea that we can make meaningful comparisons across generations is just kind of hopeless? Um, yeah, so the 1970s are really, so I'm, I grew up in the 1970s. Uh, I, I excoriated Kelton in the book review. She wrote a book about inflation and uh, about, you know, when when inflation comes because you spend too much and you run out of slack. And there was not a single mention of the 1970s. There's a hilarious line where she says uh, she praised Kennedy for various things and said there wasn't any inflation for the first half of the 1960s. Period. <laughs> She never talked. Oh, and what about it? Just and the second half, what happened then? And the seventh, no mention in a, 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 a life defining monograph about monetary theory and inflation. There's just this part of history that got airbrushed out, which starts in 1965 and ends in 1982 when she's excoriating Thatcher for being so mean. Uh, just astounding. Yes. So the 1970s are, are you, you gotta, if you're going to talk about inflation and monetary theory, you gotta know, you gotta have something to say about the one time it went horribly wrong. Uh, the, the other, you know, the big discussion going on now, of course, is, is police and, and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, from the, the policy responses that I hear from the extreme left also remind me of the late 1960s. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm all for reforming police departments and, and treating African-Americans evenly. But uh, if, if we decide that the answer is uh, no police at all and um, rebuild the Cabrini-Green public housing projects, I mean, all, all the solutions you hear were tried in the late 1960s and they led to the disaster of what inner cities were like in in the 1970s uh, when i was a kid it was r routine that you got mugged on the way home from school um uh, and that you know, we so so uh, uh, you know the cities also got destroyed in the 1970s and that's both inflation and the disaster of minority neighborhoods and and crime in the inner cities is uh lessons that we should uh, we should remember those lessons and, and at least not repeat either of them without thinking hard about it. Your larger question of economic history, I actually, um, I'm not grumpy on this one. Uh, I'm noticing more and more interest among mainstream economists in uh, economic history. 
and in paying attention to not just the latest numbers, not just the easily available numbers from the federal government, but uh, the lessons of a, a deeper uh, history. And, and, you know, even before the 1970s, uh, a couple of good ones here. You know, Tom Sargent, uh, recent Nobel Prize winner, is uh, if you want to read great current macroeconomists thinking hard about economic history. Uh, Tom Sargent, especially when he teams up with Francois Velde, an economic historian at the uh, at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, just, just writes uh, wonderful things on the history of debt in the American Revolution and uh, this defaults of the states in the 1830s and what that means for our current problems with debt and impending default of states. Uh, and and um, so I, I think I sense more and more interest in it. Lots of my economics friends show up when there's an economic historian giving a, a good talk on, on issues like that. Uh, so it's part of a, one of the few things that's healthy in the economics profession right now is I think we're paying more attention to lessons of history. All right. You've been listening to the Grumpy Economist podcast with John Cochran. You can read the Grumpy Economist blog at johnhcochran.blogspot.com. And if you enjoy the show, please rate it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. For John Cochran, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.